This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Munro. Today we're going to be talking about something that's very near and dear to my heart, something that absolutely defined most of the first part of my life. And that something is called nice guy syndrome. Nice guy syndrome. This term was coined by Dr. Robert Glover, who wrote the book No More Mr. Nice Guy. I don't know when he wrote it, many years ago. I'm very grateful that he did. Reading that book was an absolute game changer for me. And for those of you watching this who have not yet read it, please chuck it on your to-do list ASAP. This book absolutely nails the whole nice guy concept and really dives into the psychology behind it from you know a guy who really knows what he's talking about, a guy who not only experienced it for himself, but used his um, psychological talents and wisdom to clarify what it was how it affected people, and what to do about it. There's some great exercises in that book. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. A lot of what I'll be talking about today comes as a direct influence from what I read in that book. Give credit where it's due. Sometimes I steal ideas, and I do try to acknowledge when I've done that. So Nice Guy Syndrome, capital N, capital G, Nice Guy. It's an interesting wording because... That's what we call ourselves, us nice guys, or that's what we're called by other people. And it's the very the very nature of that title, nice guy, traps us in this pattern of belief and behavior. Because there's nothing wrong with being nice. That's the real struggle here. The idea that being nice is a good thing. It is a socially acceptable and improved thing. And so every time we tell ourselves that we are nice, we trap ourselves in continuing with this pattern. And so today we're going to be looking mostly at just how nice is a nice guy, really. And we're going to be picking it apart. We're going to have a look at why, even if the behavior is so-called good, why is it that we call this whole thing a syndrome? And why is it that the people who have this which affects both guys and girls. You could call it people-pleasing if you don't want to call it nice guy syndrome. Why does this lead the people who have it to suffer? Why is it if people are out there being so nice that most of the time they feel huge amounts of anxiety, low self-worth, self-loathing, and depression? So we're going to be able to look at nice guy syndrome and knowing the audience that we've got here today I'm going to be focusing a lot on how it affects your interactions socially and how it affects your ability to connect with someone, especially in the romantic sphere. I know most, if not all of the audience here today will be men, and I really want to focus on how this affects your ability to be attractive, your ability to connect deeply, and your ability to maintain a sexual relationship. Because make no mistake, if you consider yourself to be a nice guy, where it's going to be hitting you the most is sexually. And I don't just mean sex. Sex is Sexuality is more than just sex. Sexuality is masculinity, femininity, power. When somebody has nice guy syndrome, this is often what they suppress the most. And they go from being sexually powerful to passive. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. How being nice 
is really just a fancy way of saying being passive. So what does it mean to have nice go syndrome? Let's look at this from a broad starting point. <clears throat> what is nice go syndrome? How do we know that we are somebody who has it? One way to look at it is instead of calling it nice guy syndrome is to call it people pleasing and approval seeking. Now the idea here being it's not so much about the behavior, though there are some consistent patterns there. It's about why we engage in the behavior. It's about doing things to seek approval or to avoid disapproval. Now sometimes those two things can be a little bit different. So seeking approval is about actively trying to make other people like you, to influence them into thinking positively about you. Whereas avoiding disapproval is about stepping away from a situation that may lead to conflict, disapproval, confrontation, anything that might make someone actively dislike you, avoiding those situations. So seeking approval and avoiding disapproval are slightly different things, but they have the same goal in mind to keep the most social approval going as possible. And if you can't control it, to step away from at least losing it. Now, the difficulty is, and this will be happening for some of you watching this, is your brain's not going to be telling you, I'm seeking approval. You won't even be able to connect with that concept. You'll just think, I'm being a good guy. I'm being a nice guy. I'm lovely. I'm caring. I'm empathetic. I'm a good listener. You'll have a different story in your head that masks the approval seeking. And that's really what I want to get to today is trying to get past that story that's keeping you locked into this behavior. That story that makes you think being nice is a good thing. We're going to really challenge that concept today. We're going to challenge the idea that being nice is good, that being nice is something that's helpful and, and improves people's lives. And have a look instead, why are you really doing this stuff? Particularly, if any of you are watching right now, to just allow yourself to register, when do you do things that you don't actually want to do because you think it's the right thing to do socially? When do you do things that you don't want to do? When do you sacrifice what you want for what you think someone else wants? And when do you look at other people doing this where they put themselves first and call them selfish. What is the story that traps you into this pattern? So let's start by let's start by stepping back and having a look at some of the symptoms of nice guy syndrome. And this is an endless, really an endless list. We'll never get to the end of it in one session. But I want to have a look at some of the ones, particularly the ones that came up for me and the ones that come up for my one-to-one -one coaching clients. Some of the things I commonly see. Also, some of these, especially the wording I've taken for some of these, are directly from No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover. He puts it better than I ever could. So seriously, get a copy of the, his book if any of this resonates with you. So the number one symptom for me when, uh, when I was really in the depths of this, actually, let's step back. I'll give you a bit of background as to me being a nice guy, just to let you know that I'm not better than you by any means. So for the first, I'd say the first 25 years of my life, excluding being a, a minor child, you know, being an infant, um, I was affected by this nice guy thing. I remember it from a very early age. If 
very, very early age, I would actively do my best to be approved of by others. So you've got people who don't give a fuck what others think. And I was the opposite of that. I very much gave a fuck. Very, very much. It was the center point of my existence is what other people thought of me and how do I make that as positive as possible. Who knows why it began? I don't believe in cause and effect. I don't believe that you can actually establish what causes something else. It's a myth in my mind. But we can see that there are a lot of contributing factors. Now, one of the key ones for me that really resonated when I read the book was the psychology of a child. When you're very young, you believe that you are the center of everything. And you, you quite literally believe that. You think, and you can remember this if you think back to being a child, that you are the center of the universe. And, that, and therefore, everything that happens is somehow related to you. Now, this is actually part of the brain development. It's not till you're about somewhere between 9 and 12 years old that you develop the ability to think critically enough to realize, hey, maybe I'm just part of a bigger thing, not the whole thing itself. So when you're younger, you know, you, you think everything happens because of you. And so like an example for me is if one of my parents was in a bad mood or what I perceived to be a bad mood, I would immediately assume I had caused that or I was somehow aggravating it. The thought that it could have nothing to do with me never occurred. Never occurred to me at all. If someone was in a bad mood, it's because of something I had done, will do, might have done, haven't done. So I would start to I'd start to have anxious reactions to to people being upset. I started to think, look at the harm I'm doing. You know, that was the conclusion I came to when I noticed people being upset was that somehow I was creating that. Now, I've had a lot of clients share similar ex experiences. Anybody who's had what I call pressure parents, the kind of parents who really push you so hard to achieve that it like drives you crazy. And they're just really, you know, they validate themselves through your achievements. They're, it's really easy to develop this nice guy syndrome when, when you have parents who are like that. You know, the kind of parents where if you come home with 95%, on your assignment, they say, where's the other 5%, you know, those kind of parents, it, it puts you in a state where it seems like you feel like you're disappointing people all the time. And that it's very mean of you to be doing this, that you are somehow an, an evil or a cruel person for causing these disappointed, upset feelings in others. Mm -hmm. And the key idea there being causing, you believe you start these things, you create these things. The, the concept that your parents are insecure and they're taking that out on you. That doesn't occur to you. You believe them when they imply or directly state that you are the cause of their upset without any ability to critically think and go, wait, maybe they just haven't got their shit sorted and I'm wearing it. So that was the kind of thing that would happen to me a lot. If somebody else was upset in my presence, for some reason I came to the conclusion that it was because of me. And I felt a lot of guilt about this. I, was always generously genuine. Wait, I don't know what I was trying to say there. But when I was a kid, I always, I always did want people to to enjoy their lives. That was that's always been a, a very a core value of mine, is is kind of having a positive impact on the world. And so, whenever I saw that I was upsetting people, I really felt like I'd failed, not just them but myself. So I'd start to 
figure out what was it that brought them back from that upset? What could I do that would take them from being upset to being happy, to feeling good in my presence? And that's where it began for me. There was no major trauma as far as I remember. Who knows? Maybe some shit happened to me that I can't remember. But for the most part, I think I had a fairly, you know, comparatively decent upbringing. Nothing terrible happened as far as I can remember. And who knows why I came to this conclusion, but it affected the rest of my life. Got to the point where I was in high school and now it became about much more about women or girls, I should say, being that age. Their approval became very important to me and particularly because I lacked it. It, uh, in, in high school, I was very much, I don't know what it was about me, maybe it was this nice guy thing, but girls were not very interested in me in high school, by my perception anyway. Who knows, maybe they were and I was just totally overlooking it because of self-worth issues. But I, I came to the conclusion that they weren't, and in particular that they were less interested in me than they were in other guys. So I was doing a comparison thing there. And whether this is true or not is irrelevant. The point was I saw it as my duty to change that. And the way I changed that was by changing their emotional state to happy in my presence. So one of the things that I do a lot of is humor. I used humor and I used empathy as a way to make people feel good. I tried to make people feel good in my presence. Now back then I just thought I was being a good person, especially when I saw other guys doing things that hurt people and hurt the woman that I that I had crushes on or whatever, I always thought, well, look at me. At least I'm the last nice guy. You know, I'm the last uh, non-jerk on this planet. And it was, it was like some saintly thing that I started to construct. I started to see myself as the only good guy left, and it was my duty to sacrifice what I wanted to be this good guy so that at least people would have faith that guys like me did exist. I had this whole massive story about why being nice and making people happy was not just a good thing, but an honorable legacy, really, that uh, that I would be known for. So I started people-pleasing. I started engaging in behaviors that were designed to make people happy, to remove their upset feelings, to remove anything that I felt uncomfortable with, like anger or sadness or confusion or frustration. I would take anyone who was in that state and I would transform them back to happy through quite manipulative techniques. Though, of course, I didn't think of it as that. I just thought of myself as being a nice guy. As I got into my 20s, I started to see the impact of being this way. The first impact being that uh, the first relationship, long-term relationship I was in, fell apart because even after a couple of years, essentially, my girlfriend was bored of me. And it took me a long time. It wasn't until I discovered all this stuff to realize that the reason she was bored is because of my niceness. It's because I was too perfect and too, too infallible and absolutely lacking in any kind of sexual power. There was no risk-taking. There was no decisiveness. There was just this kind of passive, pleasing, fawning, submissive thing. And it's very hard for a woman to stay attracted to something like that. It's very hard for anyone to stay attracted to passive, 
unless they're also passive and they find it safe and comforting. So she absolutely was not passive and eventually she got bored and left. Now, my the critical mistaken conclusion that I came to was that I hadn't been nice enough. And this is a this is one that's going to crush so many guys out there who have this nice guy syndrome is when they see being nice as not actually having a positive effect on their lives, rather than coming to the conclusion, hey, maybe being nice or the way I'm being nice isn't quite the way, they're going to think, shit, I just wasn't doing it good enough. I need to be even nicer. I need to be more lovely, more of a good listener, less of a decision maker, and on and on it goes. And so they just drive deeper and deeper into the hole, not literally. And it's because they've, it's like when you're, uh, let's say, uh, if you've ever bought, what do you guys call it in America, a clunker, like a shit car. You bought a shit motor vehicle and it starts breaking down and you start spending a lot of money fixing it. And eventually you spend more money fixing it than you did even buying the thing. And instead of taking a big risk to like get it alone and get a decent car that's going to last a while, you just keep pouring money into this piece of shit um, hoping that this will be the last time you need to fix it. And that's that's the kind of approach nice guys take with nice guy syndrome. They keep trying to be nicer. They put more investment into being nice rather than letting go of their investment in it and going, maybe that never worked. Maybe being nice doesn't work. Now, one of the reasons that nice guys think being nice works is because occasionally it gets positive validation. And they take that to mean as this works is a huge mistake so if i'm if i'm out there so one of my key ones was making fun of myself that was one of my key nice guy kind of symptoms i'd be self-deprecating with my humor i'd make people laugh as i spoke about my own pain now in terms of you know investing in nice guy behavior rather than going wait maybe making fun of myself isn't actually a nice thing to do i started to think maybe i just need to be funnier you know, I need to get really, I need to rip the piss out of myself. That, that will make them like me. Because it would make people laugh. That's the thing. I'd see that laughter as recognition, as evidence that this is the right way to be. You know, when, when a girl says, oh, you're the nicest guy ever. I wish I could meet a guy like you. I'd take that as evidence that being nice was working. It never occurred to me. You know, that kind of common... Uh, Laments that so many nice guys have is the girls in their life will say, I wish I could meet a guy like you. And you're sitting there going, I am a guy like me. The fuck are you waiting for? Not realizing that what she says, I wish I could meet a guy who was as nice as you, but also was masculine and sexual without all this passive, pathetic stuff that you do. That's the bit she's not saying, but that's the truth of it. Is some of your behavior that she validates, she does like that behavior. Some of the behavior that you get a pat on the back for and from society, there's nothing wrong with that behavior. But the reason why you're doing it is keeping you trapped in a system that does not work. Put it this way, if being a nice guy actually worked for you, you wouldn't be watching this video, would you? Your life would be sorted. You'd feel no need for any form of self-development because you'd have everything sorted out, Right? There would be no anxious nights wishing that things were different. There would be no internal frustration and rage as you watch the world treat you badly, even though you think you deserve to be treated better. That wouldn't be happening. 
if nice guyness worked for you. Because, and this really segues into something that we need to bring out onto the table. Being nice masks something very dark and sinister. And that is rage. One thing that nice guys have in common is a deep-seated, very uncomfortable and very painful source of rage. This pool of built-up resentment and bitterness. We don't want to even admit it to ourselves because that doesn't line up with being a nice guy. We're so attached to that nice guy identity, we can't even admit to ourselves that we are fucking mad. You know, that we are really... We are not happy with the way things are going and we we, are, we really blame the world and we really feel that the universe is unfair, that the universe is mean to us. One of the symptoms of nice guy syndrome is feeling really, really connected to people who are being bullied and picked on and victims. Anybody who seems to be uh, suffering the consequences of the universe being unfair, we get deeply upset by that. And I believe the reason is because that's who we see ourselves as. We see ourselves as the, the bullying victim of the universe. That look how nice I am and I'm still not getting what I want. How unfair is that? What, look at all these assholes out there getting whatever they want. Here's me being nice and I'm not getting what I want. Maybe I should just be an asshole. You know, there's this kind of bitter resentment that's building up under the, under the surface. So we'll have a look at why that's happening but first let's have a look at some of the common symptoms of nice guy syndrome so that those of you watching might be able to hear yourselves being described so i made a little list here let me get my list sorted here let's start with helping without being asked this was one of my big ones helping without being asked another version of this is giving advice that nobody asked for so there's nothing wrong with helping people is there absolutely nothing the world would be a much better place if people were more helpful i have no doubt about that however when it comes to being a nice guy what makes it different is why you're doing it now helping without being asked is different to helping so if somebody goes can you please help me with this by doing this that would be me helping now if i see somebody doing something and i think they're doing it wrong and i just dive in and help them or I think they need me. I judge them as being un incapable of doing this thing by themselves. Even though they have not asked, I will dive in there. Now, this is, this is one of the darker symptoms of nice guy syndrome because it shows real judgment. You look at people as being incapable of functioning without you. You, Especially when it comes to giving unsolicited advice. Like somebody's telling you about their problem, you tell them how to fix it, and they haven't asked you to tell them that. They haven't asked for any advice whatsoever. And even if they have asked for advice, have you given them the advice they're asking for? Or have you just told them what you think they should hear? So helping without being asked, a huge symptom of nice guy syndrome. And we'll have a look in a, in a minute at why helping without being asked is different to helping in terms of the overall nice guy intentions that toxify everything. The next one, and this is one I took directly from... Dr. Robert Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, is Covert Contracts. And this is actually an underlying theme behind most of the behavior for Nice Guy Syndrome, is that there is a secret contract happening when you engage in your behavior. 
contract that the other person does not know about, but you think that they should know about it, and therefore you don't need to tell them. This might take the form, for example, of doing favors for someone and expecting them to reward you in some way. Not telling them that you want a reward or demanding that reward directly, but just hoping, in a sense, that they will pay you back. So you can see this a lot, especially in relationships, nice guy relationships. So the nice guy will be nice, he'll do all these things, and he'll slowly build up a bitterness if he doesn't see himself being paid back for these nice things, particularly if he doesn't see himself being paid back in sex. So quite often a guy in a, in a sexual relationship, he'll do the, you know, he'll do all the chores and he'll do favors and he'll surprise her with flowers and he'll do all this thoughtful stuff, you know, he's, he's trying his best to make her life as awesome as possible. And deep down he's thinking, now, now I've earned this, this and this. Now I've earned sex and now I've earned cuddles and now I've earned compliments. And then he gets bitter when those things don't happen. She should know, he says to himself. She should give me this. I've earned it. So covert contracts are when you have that expectation of a reward for your behavior, and yet you don't say anything about it. You just sit there and get bitter, and eventually you'll punish them for not living up to their end of the contract that they didn't know about, like sulking or like holding back on those nice things that you were doing before, you know, withdrawing. Oh, well, she's not going to have sex with me. What's the point of me even doing that stuff? You'll say to yourself, that's a covert contract. Um, and this is really, it really underlies the difference between nice guy behavior and genuine, genuine, generous behavior is that the genuine behavior doesn't come with an IOU attached to it. It doesn't come with a debt. If a confident person does a nice thing for somebody, they don't expect anything in return. They're doing it for the sake of being nice. They're doing it because it's the right thing for them to do. They don't even care if the other person doesn't enjoy their behavior or doesn't notice that it happened because that's not why they're doing it. They're not doing it for a reaction. A nice guy is always doing it for a reaction. A nice guy always comes, this comes with a debt. I am racking up points. I am scoring so that I can win this game. There's never a freely given thing from a nice guy. And this is where we start to separate nice guys from confident guys. A nice guy tells himself he's lovely, but really he is manipulative. He is putting people into debt. He is obliging them to repay the favors that they didn't even ask for in the first place. Another common symptom is fear or hatred towards women, particularly attractive women or subjectively who you find attractive. So fear. So if you feel anxiety when you're in the presence of a woman that you're attracted to, if, for example, you get erectile dysfunction when you really want to uh, have sex with a woman that you're attracted to, or you just notice that you behave differently around attractive people as you do to people you don't find attractive. So you might, for example, it's common for nice guys to have many friends who are girls, and the ones they feel most comfortable with are the ones they feel no sexual attraction towards. But as soon as they're around a girl they do feel comfortable with, even if she's a friend, uh, it, it, they do find attractive, even if she's a friend, uh, they'll get quite uncomfortable and their behavior will change significantly. Hatred happens. It really does. And this is the part that the nice guy struggles with the most because he does not want to admit that he can be both nice and nasty. Nice guys can get really fucking nasty. They can, like, it's shocking. 
some of the text messages I've seen, some of the, you know, the interactions I've seen between nice guys and women when the nice guy finally realizes that the woman's not going to repay his hidden favors and so on, is this absolute demon comes out, this this hateful thing. Now, not all nice guys do this. I was, I don't think I was ever like this. I had bitterness and resentment. Oh, yes. But I self-directed it. I thought it was, I was something wrong with me. I never blamed them for it. But some nice guys blame women. They blame women for the problems in their life. They think women are evil in some way. They think they are inherently nasty to them and unfair to them. Now, one of the key things that happens here is because being nice is such a desperate, needy way to act, it attracts users. So it's more likely for a nice guy to be surrounded by the kind of women that actually have earned contempt, the kind of women who use guys like this to their advantage, they're more likely to find a nice guy uh, than a confident woman. A confident woman will find a nice guy unappealing and will leave him quickly, um, while others, some some confident women, will stick around with nice guys because they want to help them. But for the most part, if there is a woman who has a platonic friendship with a nice guy, a people-pleasing, desperate, needy guy, it will be because she has her own health issues mentally or emotionally she finds some validation in being around him she won't want to admit this to herself but i think it's very rare for healthy people to want to spend time with unhealthy people but unhealthy people really do attract and and magnetize towards other unhealthy people so being a nice guy will attract either girls who are, are needy themselves or users you know girls who are toxic uh and so the this pattern will start to prove itself to the guy. He'll start seeing himself. See, look how I'm treated. This girl friends own me again when she's trying to be nice, you know. Or, you know, this girl keeps like, she lets me spend money on her and all that kind of stuff. But whenever I try to get anywhere with her, she just puts me off. And then it all happens again the next day and the next day. And the guy starts blaming. He starts thinking it's because of them and because of this and because of the universe hates me. And the resentment builds into hatred. This shows an absolute lack of taking responsibility. Now, taking responsibility is what I'd call a masculine value. I don't think masculine and feminine are better or worse than each other. I do believe they are absolutely different, however. And taking responsibility is a masculine value. And and what you see with nice guy syndrome is this kind of getting into the control room and turning off all the masculine switches. That's what nice guys do because they have a story about how those masculine drives like assertiveness decisiveness risk-taking power all of these things are somehow harmful you know anger that kind of emotion i think it's harmful so they try to turn it all off and instead of becoming feminine which you think might happen is they become passive this kind of gray area in the middle they're neither giving nor receiving neither you know yin nor yang they're that line in the middle squiggly s thing um and, and the hatred builds. They wonder why women aren't attracted to them when they have no masculine or feminine power whatsoever. You know, there's no sexuality to them. They are asexual, nice guys. They might as well be, you know, a Ken doll with nothing down there. They're just, there's nothing going on sexually. So there's nothing for a girl to be attracted to. Now, the girl looks at the gu- nice guy's behavior and goes, God, he's so lovely. I should be attracted to that. But I'm not. And they end up saying things like, God, I wish I could meet a guy like you. What they're saying is, I wish I could be attracted to someone who treats me this well. And this is what I mean by 
nice guys attracting unhealthy girls. For a girl to look at a nice guy and think, oh, that's the kind of guy I should be attracted to, shows their lack of awareness. A guy who's treating you that well and you haven't earned it and he doesn't seem to want anything in return. There's no reciprocation happening. He's worshipping you. And you think that that's a good thing? Then that means there's some unhealthy stuff you need to work through as well. A desperate desire to please. For me, it took the form of a belief that absolutely it was my duty to make other people feel happy. It was my responsibility, my obligation, like some sort of ninja thing, you know, samurai, like honorable thing was to make other people feel happy. I don't know why. I just, I'd accumulated this rule that that's what had to happen. Every interaction I was in, the outcome must be other people's lives were better. In other words, they were feeling more pleasure. I took that on. Rather than thinking, hey, somebody else's emotions is their journey. That's their responsibility. It's got nothing to do with me. I can just be me and they can sort their own emotions out. See, what's ironic is a nice guy, you ask a nice guy, who's in, who's responsible for your emotions? And they'll say, I am. And I'll say, well, okay, so why are you taking responsibility for other people's? If you understand the concept that you are responsible for your own emotions, why do you do it for other people? Which leads into... The other symptom, manipulating other people into happy emotional states. Yeah. So a nice guy almost always sees happy as the the one emotion, the one that everybody's supposed to be all the time, and every other emotion is wrong. And so uh, a, a nice guy will try to manipulate people back towards happy. If they see someone who's sad, they won't just let them be sad. They'll go and try to cheer them up. In other words, manipulate them towards being happy. If someone's agitated, they'll try and calm them down, manipulate them back towards happy. You know, if someone's angry, they'll try to calm them down. If someone's confused, they'll try to unconfuse them. They'll try to fix the problem to get them back to happy. And the whole time telling themselves the story, hey, I'm such a good guy for doing this. Rather than telling themselves the truth, I'm doing this to seek approval. Repressed emotional expression is a, is a huge symptom for nice guys. And this is where anything other than happy gets hidden. If you're frustrated, if you're confused, if you're sad, if you're angry, you pretend not to be a lot of the time. Now, this this, this is a bit different for each, each guy. And all these symptoms may or may not apply depending on, on what kind of nice guy you are sort of thing. Um but repressed emotional expression, basically trying to get yourself to this point where you are unaffected, where you appear to be unaffected. Uh, and in particular, the, the most repressed emotional expression I see from nice guys is anger. Until they explode, of course, because they can't hold it in anymore. But when the little things piss them off, they hold it and they avoid confrontation. And to, do, to avoid confrontation, they have to pretend that they're okay with everything. Then there's, yeah, a lack of all those masculine traits. You see a lot of that in nice guys. A lack of assertiveness, decisiveness, risk-taking, leadership, courage, honesty, all of these things. A nice guy is really quite dishonest, and yet he'll tell himself he's honest because that's what a nice guy should be, is honest. So he'll say he's honest, but in reality, he hides most of the truth about himself most of the time. And in fact, he hides it so well that even he doesn't know what it is, you know. And attached to an identity. So a guy seeing himself as the nice guy, the reliable guy, the friendly guy, the funny guy. This kind of Superman costume that the guy puts on every time he leaves his house and has to interact with other people. He becomes this performance and he lives by it. He takes pride in it, this 
performance that he's cultivated. So a lot of this behavior, especially the like helping people and being a good listener and trying to to work with people who are in pain, this, this, what's wrong with this behavior? Nothing, right? There's nothing wrong with it. So what makes it different from true generosity and true kindness? That's the intention. It's the intention. The nice guy is trying to get something when he does this stuff. That is the difference. A confident person will be generous and kind and nice because they believe, according to their own values, that is the right thing to do in that moment. They're willing to do that even if everyone hates them for it because they believe it's the best thing to do. They're not doing it because of their reaction. They're doing it to reward themselves for integrity. Now, a nice guy does it without fail to get something, to be approved of, to be seen as a good guy, to build up points for the covert contract, to avoid disapproval, to fit in, to stand out. Whatever it is, there's a reason why they're doing it that is beyond self-satisfaction. It is about something to do with society. There's even a kind of inverse nice guy, uh, the kind of guy who causes a scene, the kind of guy who argues against everything. Uh, a contrarian, I believe is the word. And I believe that this is almost the same as being a nice guy, the kind of person who seems to stand against everything that everybody else stands for, who always wants to be in the in the out group. The person, like I saw this a lot, I'm, I play in a metal band, and you see this a lot in the metal scene. People who deliberately go against mainstream, they like to make a big deal about it. You know, like if everyone likes a band, they go, oh, I hate that band. You know, if everyone's voted for one politician, oh, they should have voted for the other one. They're always against what the majority does. And for me, this is just as as disingenuous as being a nice guy. That's just as fake. You're not really saying what you want. You're not really true to yourself. You're just saying something that will live up to an identity, like being the rebel, um, which is really no different. So how does this all affect us? You know, by the way, we are leading towards some solutions. I will talk about some practical application at the end there. But how does this affect us? Well, let's have a look at what it's like when you do not have any sexual power in your life. One of the most, I, I wrote an article called why your boyfriend doesn't initiate sex. And it was, and still is the most, the most popular piece of content I've ever put on the internet without a doubt. Nothing else, even the book I wrote has had the kind of attention that this one article had. And every week, or at least almost every week, I get an email from some woman who's read that article saying, help me. And the emails are almost the same as in started seeing this guy and it was great at first. And now he just doesn't seem to want sex. What's wrong with me? If I, is it because I put on a bit of weight? So on, so on. These, these seeming, these women who are so confused and frustrated because their guy seems to have lost interest in sex or never had it in the first place. What I've come to realize as I work with more and more of the, the people who send me their e these emails and their partners, is that so often what I'm seeing is nice guy syndrome, a guy who's so avoidant of risk-taking that he cannot initiate sex. He cannot make sex happen or try to without getting a clear green light, go ahead, you're welcome to try signal from the woman. If he doesn't see that, the risk is too great and he will stand passively by and wait for her to initiate. 
So what happens is, is being passive forces the woman to be both feminine and masculine all the time. She has to be the one who cares for him and she has to be the one who leads. And the guy's doing neither because he's so wrapped up in his own anxiety and shit all the time. He's so focused on doing all these nice things. He's not even listening to her. He's not even doing what she really wants. He's just doing what he thinks she should want. Um, and so this nice guyness absolutely destroys relationships and it kills them slowly. It's like a poison. So the people get more and more invested over time. They become really invested before the problems really start to emerge. It can be years before each party realizes just how fucked the relationship has always been really. Because what the, the key uh, factor here is a nice guy starts a relationship with a big performance. You know, he's so nice and so loving and generous and kind and blah, blah, blah. That the woman comes to expect, wow, he's going to be like this all the time. I've found the man. Like, I've found just the best guy on the planet here. He seems to have some problems in the bedroom, but I'm sure we'll sort that out. You know, he seems to have some problems making decisions occasionally, but I'm sure we'll sort that out. And yet month after month, eventually the performance starts to wind down. The guy loses interest in performing as he becomes more secure in the relationship, or he just gets exhausted from trying to keep up the performance. And he starts to pull back on trying to impress the woman. And the poor woman's sitting there going, why has he changed? What's different? And now the little things that weren't such a big deal at the start start to become more obvious. So, and he's always had this problem in the bedroom. You know, and he never makes the decisions. I always have to make the decisions. Start seeing these patterns. And this is why nice guyness is really just such a toxic thing. It destroys relationships as the person starts to realize the the guy they go into a relationship with does not exist. He was a performance. He was a fake, constructed, contrived performance. And this poor woman or man, depending on your orientation, has invested deeply in this performance. And they've basically fallen in love with a ghost, a fiction, a person who does not exist, hiding in the body of someone who does. Nice guy, what they do is they push everybody into the middle. So because there's absolute passivity, you can't really hate them. It's, it's, it's difficult to hate nice guys a lot of the time because, wow, they're just so nice. You know, oh, he's such a nice guy. You know, he's, oh, you got to meet, you got to meet Jimmy, such a lovely guy. You know, you can't, can't say a bad word about him. Lovely guy. But you can't really love him either. So you can, you can't hate him because there's nothing really wrong with him, but there's nothing to really spice you up. There's nothing to really spark a true deep desire for the person. I'm not just talking about, uh, sexual but passionate desire you know the kind that two platonic men friends can have you're just like fuck can't wait to see john again i fucking love that dude he's awesome that's so much different to oh he's such a nice guy so different so what what uh, nice guys do is they use dishonesty to push everyone into the middle push them away from hate and actually away from love into like into that sort of space in the middle that like because like is safe you can't get rejected with like you can't get hurt with like, you can't be vulnerable with like, you're, you're nice and safe in the middle. Now what a confident person does is the opposite, they use honesty to push people out to the sides. So while a, a nice guy uses manipulation and dishonesty points push someone into like, a confident person uses honesty powerfully to push someone into love or hate. 
when you meet me, you're either going to think I'm awesome or you're going to fucking absolutely can't stand me and want to get away from me. One thing you won't do is walk around, oh, he's a pretty nice guy. Yeah, not bad, not bad. You won't have that opinion with a, with a confident person. So the main, the main effect of being nice in this way, being this kind of manipulative, covert, contracty type of person, is that you are not going to have any true connections. You might be surrounded by people who like you, and yet you will feel absolutely alone. You will feel deep-seated, gnawing loneliness, eating away at you. And this is the curse of the nice guy because they feel that loneliness. They think, oh, I need to just make more friends. I need more people to like me. That will fill the hole. I need more validation. I need to make more people laugh more often. I need to have more people say, good job, Daniel. You know, I need more, more, more. Rather than going, actually, I need to be more honest so I end up having less people in my life. So why? Where does it come from? Why don't we polarize people into love and hate through authenticity why don't we just go hey here i am actually you know here's my real anger here's my real sadness here's my real frustration here's what i actually believe in and here's what i disagree with why don't we use that stuff to try and find those good fit connections the kind of people are going to love you just for being you well it's simple isn't it it's fear it's just fear we are afraid of doing that why why are we afraid of doing that? What do we think is going to happen? Now, what I find in so many of the clients I work with was that in the earlier stages in their life, there were legitimate reasons for this fear. I had one, uh, one of my clients, for example, almost every day his dad kicked his ass. I mean, almost every day he got a beat down from his father. I mean, I've known some sort of violence parents and stuff in my time. My parents never were, but... Uh, I've known some friends and stuff, but never someone who had every day. You know, this guy wasn't exaggerating. He said every day, unless I didn't go home, which was you know quite often, he would uh, run away from home and stuff, there would be a reason for a beating. You never knew when it was going to come. You'd never know why. There was no consistency to it. It would just happen at some point in time. So for him, trying to please his father was actually a safety security measure. There was a time where that fear was legitimate. He was going to be harmed if his father was displeased. Now, again, you can see that childlike thing. Ah, it must be me making my father beat me up. Rather than, hey, maybe this guy shouldn't have had kids in the first place. He's a fucking douchebag. You know, that never occurs to a child. He just thinks, oh, I've caused this thing, especially when it's your own parents. and You have that massive connection to them, that bond. So we've become... You know, afraid in childhood that, that there's going to be some serious harm. You know, a lot of nice guys come from a background of being bullied, being picked on or being uh, ostracized by kids at school. That kind of, there seem to be genuine consequences for not being approved of by others. And uh, I call this the fear of abandonment. Or maybe somebody else calls it that and I stole it, I can't remember. But this fear that if I am not liked by everyone... I will be hated by everyone. I will be left completely alone. Now, what's ironic about this fear is that to overcome it, you have to accept it. The only way that you're going to be able to be authentic and honest with people is to be willing to lose them all. Be willing to have every single person on the planet abandon you in order for you to be truthful. It's a lot easier to say than it is to do. I know that. 
But I just want to point that out there. You are not going to be able to connect well with people if you're trying to keep them. It's as simple as that. If, if any behavior you do with the intention of making them like you more is a behavior that puts a wall between the two of you. You're actually losing them with that behavior anyway. Nice guyness will guarantee that you end up alone. Not in numbers. You'll be surrounded by people, but you will feel alone. Another fear is the fear of insignificance. People pleasers often do what they do so that they are noticed, so that they are recognized as existing. It's one of the key fears that we're born with is this fear of insignificance. And especially as we get older and we realize how big the universe is or as big as we can comprehend it to be and how many other people there are and how many different lives and stories are happening and how insignificant we feel as that one grain of sand on that endless beach. And this fear becomes how do we make it so we're known as something? You know, the nice guy. At least if I have an identity, then I'm significant. Then I mean something. I'm telling you right now, if you want to feel significant, create real connections with people. Loneliness and insignificance disappears when you feel truly connected with someone. And the only way you're going to feel truly connected is if you're open and honest. And survival. As I mentioned with that first example, there are, you know, there's probably some deep evolutionary connection for this fear. And that is if you're, you know, if we go back thousands of years, if you were kicked out of the tribe, if you were ostracized, you died. You know, you needed the group to survive. And so often you'll have a fight or flight response to somebody not liking you. I remember lying awake for weeks after I'd found out someone had something bad to say about me or disagreed with me in some way. I actually felt like I was really at risk, this kind of danger feeling, this panic. Um, or if I got embarrassed in public, I'd feel this like massive fight or flight response, this adrenaline rush. How do I get out of this situation? And yet it's completely irrational. You can see now that you could even you could probably have the whole world not like you and still survive just fine. You could probably still get a job as long as you found an employer who wasn't going to discriminate because they didn't like you, you know. Or you could go on welfare or something like that. You it'd be very unlikely that you'd get to a point where you're going to die because people don't like you but your brain believes that is likely and it behaves as such so anytime you notice yourself in a social interaction having a fight or flight response identify actually is my life in danger right now is this response necessary for this situation now i don't mean repress it just be aware that the response is based on a rational fear not on logic you might say Say you're on a date and you're talking and you say something and the other person seems offended and you're like, fight or flight response. So wait, are they going to stab or shoot me? You know, is anyone in here going to stab or shoot me? No? Okay, then this response is just a fear-based thing. It's just a response. It's an ancient, outdated response that no longer applies to this situation. So essentially when it comes to dealing with nice guy syndrome, it's really about dealing with those fears. It's about facing them and learning to overcome them or at least live with them. And that's what I want to finish up with is some practical tips that will help you break through this nice guy syndrome, be able to connect with other people genuinely and ultimately overcome these fears. My top tip, my first one is journaling. Now, what I mean by journaling is reflecting and narrating your own behavior. So having a look at the way you were at the end of each day and questioning and challenging yourself, asking, why did I do that? Really? What was the point of that behavior? Why did I react that way? What's really going on for me? 
It's about looking at yourself as if you're watching somebody else and giving yourself feedback. You know, today I noticed that Sally was trying to move some boxes in the office and I just jumped in and started helping her with those boxes. Now I can say that there's nothing wrong with helping someone move boxes, but I noticed that Sally didn't ask me to help her. I just saw her moving them and assumed she needed that help. I actually judged her there. And then I dived in and gave her help, so now she's going to feel a guilty obligation to help me back. I just manipulated her with that behavior. Whereas all I need to do differently is say, hey, Sally, do you want to hand with those boxes? That way she could have said no. That's what I mean by journaling. Having a look at your own behavior and go, really, was that genuinely confident behavior, the kind where I'd do it even if people disapproved of it because it's the right thing to do? Or was I trying to seek some form of approval and be seen as a good person? Getting feedback from others on your people-pleasing behavior. Now, be careful who you get this feedback from because the ones who want to use you, they'll say, yeah, keep doing it. So what you want is to find whoever in your life you believe to be genuinely confident, the kind of people you admire secretly for being all those things that you also think is wrong to be, assertive, direct, um, even aggressive, the kind of people who are doing what you secretly wish you could do. Go up to them, be bold and say, hey, look, I'm trying to work on myself. I actually want to be a bit more like you, to be fair. I want to be more confident, more assertive. But I've got this thing where I'm always trying to please others. You've seen me at the office. What have you noticed? What would you say was my least confident behavior? And get some feedback. There'll be things you'd have no idea about. I remember the, I tell this story quite often. This girl called me out on my self-deprecating humor. I was making jokes about myself as she was laughing. And then she just kind of stopped laughing and said, you know what, Daniel, can I just be honest? That's kind of pathetic. And I was shocked, you know. It's like a bullet to the chest. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well... It's funny and kind of charming, but at the same time, I know you mean it. I know you really don't like yourself, and that makes me uncomfortable. And it was a huge wake-up call. I didn't realize that that was perceived that way. And it gave me the permission to relook at this behavior and say, is this actually genuine behavior for me, or am I trying to perform for people? One of, this, one of the other things that I did, and I got this directly from Dr. Robert Glover's book, was to stop helping people to stop trying to make people feel better. I deliberately did it for three weeks just to see what would happen and just to see how often I would have done it to seek some form of approval. And I, I had a huge realization. One was that I noticed I am looking for opportunities to help people and get rewarded all day long. It's constantly looking out for my desk to see if anyone needed a hand. Every time I saw an email that slightly hinted that somebody was struggling with something, I was really tempted to do something about it. It was really hard for me to say no at work and so on. And then in my social life, I was always just trying to make people laugh and constantly scanning the room to see if anyone wasn't having a good time so I could go and fix it, you know. And just by stopping for those few weeks, I noticed this happened. The second thing I noticed happening is that me stopping that behavior wasn't even noticed. Nobody gave a shit that I wasn't helping anymore. I hadn't really been doing it for them. They didn't notice. They were not lacking without me. They survived just fine without me. And that's when I realized that my behavior was really judgmental because I was really saying I, they can't survive without me when in reality they could. So you can replace it with anonymous giving. And that is you do nice things for people, but you make sure that they cannot know it was you, that you cannot get any reward from them or anyone else for it. The only reward you can get is from your self-satisfaction. So an example of this, it's what I call anonymous giving. An example would be 
going to your boss and praising somebody else in the team. Say, you know, I just saw Jim doing some awesome work. I, I think you might have missed it. He, he went and did this project without being asked and blah, blah, blah. Don't tell him I told you, you know. I just wanted to let you know. You know, I just I was really impressed by his behavior. So you're giving. So Jim's going to receive some sort of recognition for that, and he won't know that you did it. You won't be able to get anything in return. There's no IOU covert contract there. You know, um, if you're going to give someone a gift, give it anonymously from a secret admirer, from Santa. Do it in a way where they get to experience the reward of the gift and the mystery of never knowing who it came from, and you don't get a pat on the back from it from anyone but yourself. And a big one, if you really want to challenge your nice guy behavior, choose discomfort by having a confrontation every single day. It doesn't have to be a big one. It can be as simple as disagreeing with someone. It can be as simple as answering a question honestly. When somebody says, how is your day? And you say, oh, I'm feeling a bit grumpy today. It can be as simple as that. But choosing to say something that you believe will cause disapproval, doing it deliberately every single day to harden yourself up to it, to become resilient to the idea of sometimes people not liking you, and also to test your theory. And that is, nice guy theory is that if someone disapproves of me, that relationship is basically over. If I ask a girl out and she says no, that's me and her done forever. If I disagree with my boss, he's going to hate me forever and I'll never be able to move up in my career. That's a nice guy thinking. I want you to go and test that. Can I actually be disapproved of and then maintain a relationship with that person afterward? Is it okay to occasionally disagree? Can I see that actually take place? Alrighty. Whoo-wee, that was a lot of talking. So we're, we're kind of scratching the surface on nice guy syndrome there. For those of you who have my course, the 3X Confidence course, we go into deep, deep detail on how to break through to authenticity there. Um, so if you don't have that, grab yourselves access to that. It's definitely going to be worth it. And read Dr. Robert Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. You know, it's a page turner. If you've got nice guy syndrome, it's going to feel like a kick in the nuts every time you read that book. But it will be the kind of pain that you need to go through. It's self-realization and awareness so that you can change. And of course, you can get in touch with me anytime, dan at brojo.co.nz. My specialty really is helping guys who have this. And so I'm here for you to support you in whatever way I can, which may include just a quick email back and forth all the way through to full-on coaching, which I'm happy to do as well. So if you're ready to change, move forward, go out there and take some action, go out there and let some people dislike you in order to be truthful and just see what happens to your ability to connect. And I'll see you guys next time. Cheers.